0: Open your Bible with me to John chapter 14, and I have. uh, We've obviously been in a series, which I was fully planning on taking another step in today, and then the yesterday I don't remember when it was. This sometimes just a word will stir up in me, or just come to me, and it's like uh, a little gong goes in me, and I just know that that's something to to be that maybe that's something the Spirit of God wants to say now, and so that's where I kind of went in the direction. In the time I had to prepare for this, and then this morning I got up very early, and it's just I kept going back and forth between the two. So I don't know what's going to come out, <laughs> and I really see that they kind of blend together. If you if you if you get the CD of this, you will find the title is 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 one part of this series of Abiding in Him. But but really, what's in me is to talk about about the greatest gift that's ever been given, and that really they really do fit together. And in John 14, really is part of the study we were working in last week. Actually, we got into John 15, but I want to go back over something here. Um, and we'll just see where this goes. Jesus, as we talked about last week, Jesus is, is preparing these, His disciples for His departure. He's lived with them for... Somewhere over three years, they don't really know that, exactly how long it's been, but it's about three, three plus years that they've lived together and ministered together, and they've watched him do incredible things. They've watched him open blind eyes, open deaf ears. They've watched him feed thousands of people with a boy's lunch. They've watched him, they've watched him walk on water. They've, they've, whenever they've had a need, he's been the answer to their need. And not only that, he's given them a purpose for their life. Before they met him, they were, they were fishermen. Not that there's anything wrong with being fishermen, but he gave them a higher purpose for their life, other than just catching fish and making a living for themselves. But he gave them an eternal purpose, because he called them and says, Up until this time you've been fishers, you've been fishermen. But at this, from this point on, I am making you fishers of men. I'm giving you a higher purpose, a higher destiny, a higher calling for your life. And that that gave them that greater value value. I was looking at some old movies and things and, and just thinking back. I guess this time of year you tend to do that. And and, and uh, uh, think back on, on on people that were famous 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and they're not here anymore. I happened to notice at the end of a program the other day, they're just listing off famous people that passed away this year. Well, a year ago they didn't know that and realize that our life, and maybe it's, maybe it's turning 65 this year, I don't know, but it's realizing. That our life like a hand's breath, the Bible says. and, and you gather together with family at Christmas time, and you, you know the part of the joy and excitement is you see young young children experiencing the joy of Christmas, and you think back of what it was like when you were that age and how fast it's gone. and, 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 and then what happens is if we don't think about it. Well, what happens in the back of our mind, we don't like to think about it, is we begin to project forward. Well, if that's happened to them, it's going to happen to me. And this is an exciting Christmas message. (laughs) It's going to happen to me. And if you listen to think about that in terms of what the Bible says, you begin to get God's perspective on life. God's perspective on this life here is that's exactly what it is. It's so brief. And we try to hold on to it. And we try to... And it's good to squeeze everything out of life you can, if you do it the right way, and enjoy the fullness of your life. But what we try to do is hold on to it because we think this is it. This is it. And for those that don't know Christ this is the best it gets. But for those of us that know Christ, this is the worst it gets. This life here, these brief moments that we have here are nothing compared to eternity. And the real value and meaning of life is not our experiences here. The real value and meaning of life is this is a preparation for the real life that awaits us. And that needs to be our perspective. That was the perspective of the Apostle Paul because he, that's how he could go through all the things he went through and go through them with joy because he came to the end. And it's interesting as you read through 2 Timothy, he reflects back and realizes all of Asia fell away. That's where most of his ministry was. And if you look back on that and if he had looked back on this in earthly terms, he would look back and say, well, I failed. All that I gave, all that I sacrificed, all that I gave up for them. See, he didn't... Just a little side note. When you're aware of your sacrifice, you didn't pay it. You didn't give it. When you walk around thinking, of what a price I'm paying, you haven't paid it yet. It's in that moment where you're holding on to the other end of the dollar. You handed it to the clerk. You're $10, you want whatever that is, and you can't, but you're not sure you really want it. So you're, not, you're in that state of, well, I'm going to let go and really let it. Because once you let go, your focus goes from the $10 to what you just bought. So that was a worthwhile exchange. And so when we're serving the Lord, when we give our life to the Lord, that is a worthwhile exchange because what you get back is far better than what you gave up. And that was the Apostle Paul's view. He wasn't walking around talking about all oh, this costume Oh my goodness, you know, I had a career and I gave my career up. And people say to me, you know, you gave up a beautiful lucrative law practice to, you know, had you ever think about it? No, I don't ever think back on it. Because I'm fulfilling the calling God had for my life. That wasn't it. Some of that was part of the preparation, but I'm in the middle of God's will. I don't ever regret anything when you're in the middle of God's will. The purpose of my life is to please Him. The purpose of my life is to fulfill the calling and purpose that God has called me to. And there is no satisfaction that begins to compare to standing in front of Him and hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the goal of my life. It's not to acquire things and those things are nice to have and not have. It doesn't matter. The goal of my life is to live my life and hear those words at the end of my course. And Paul said, I have finished my course. I have run my race. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness and for all those who await for his appearing. So Paul's focus was not on whether he succeeded or failed here. He succeeded because he did what God called him to do because God gave him a higher calling. And so Jesus' disciples, he gave them a higher purpose for their life and that was they were now to be fishers of men. They were to be part of God's grand plan and scheme to rescue and deliver people that He loves so dearly. And that includes you and me. Because if it weren't for those men that followed Jesus, we wouldn't be here. That's right. Because they were, to take up, they were to take up that divine purpose once He left. And so in John 14, we see Him preparing them for this transition. We see Him preparing them who have become so dependent upon Him and are being around Him. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine, but you know, you wake up in the middle of the night and you just, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? And you just, oh Jesus is here, it's okay. Because you've watched him walk through crowds that were trying to stone him and he just walked through them and they stepped aside and they just gave way to him. So when you've lived with somebody like that and you've served with someone like that, you become dependent upon them and now he's preparing them that he's going to leave them. And that's, we talked about that last week, but we're going to talk from this a little bit, a different slant today. John 14, verse 19. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you will live also. And that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and i will love him and manifest myself to him now the word manifest means to reveal or make known or make known at a different level or make more real to when i was growing up we would spend some part of our summers up in a place in maine where my mother grew up and and she grew up in a small community. And I remember uh, uh, that somewhere that summer out in the middle of a, of a, um, of a park, um, there was this structure out there that had a, had a um, cloth draped over it. And it was creating tremendous curiosity. Um, we all knew, we knew what it was supposed to be. It was a, it was a sculpture, but nobody had seen it because the artist had worked on it and brought it in uh, under the cover of night and set it up and they're waiting for the ceremony of the unveiling of this. And, and then the day came for the, for the ceremony and at the height of the ceremony they pulled the cover off and now the sculpture was manifest. It was there all along but now they could see it. They couldn't figure out what it was <laughs> but they could see it. And if they wanted to they could go touch it. And Jesus is saying to them, now listen to this, He's been living with them. They could go over and touch Him. They could hear His voice. And He's saying that if you will do what I've commanded you to do, which is to walk in the love that we've been talking about, then I will manifest Myself to you. Well, He couldn't mean manifest in the sense of seeing with their eyes, because they already saw Him at one level. He couldn't mean manifest so that they could hear His voice, because they could hear His natural voice already. And it certainly couldn't be so they could touch Him, because they were already able to touch Him. So what was He talking about? Well, He's talking about manifesting something beyond what their eyes could see and their ears could hear, and beyond what their hands could touch. He was talking about manifesting His glory And his life, and that's what we've been talking about. Is that, is that Ephesians tells us in first chapter four, one through sixteen, is that the body is to build itself up in love, and what we've been studying is this love of God that's different than any other kind of love. We've gone through and we've looked at the challenge of it in Matthew chapter 5 that says we're to love our enemies, we're to pray for those that despitefully use us, we're to bless those that curse us, do the opposite of what we want to do or what makes sense but it's exactly what God's done because that's what His type of love does. And We've talked about the fact that that's what He's done with us because in many ways we've Cursed at Him. In many ways, we've we've used Him. In many ways, we've done these things to Him. But instead of getting back at us, He's done nothing but love us and give to us and take care of us and been patient with us. And therefore, He calls us to do the same thing with one another. And we began to look last week at how can we do that? How can we live this kind of love out? And the answer we began to see was in these verses, in these, in this, these chapters together, in Jesus' last instruction. So he says that if you will do this, what I'm going to do is manifest myself to you. Well, let's read on. I'm going to manifest something about myself that's different than what you've seen, that's beyond what you've seen. Well, this was a little confusing. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the words which you hear are not mine but my father's, my fathers who sent me. What is the greatest gift that's ever been given? Well, it was talked about uh, Friday night at New, uh, Christmas Eve. God gave His Son to us as a gift of His love. But what I was striking me as I was meditating and just getting ready for this service is something that God had shown me a long time ago. We all have come to God for different reasons. Some of us came to God because, you know, our lives were a disaster. We needed somebody to rescue us. Well, in reality, that's where we all were. It was just some of us didn't realize it. I mean, some of you knew your life was a disaster. I thought my life was great because in the outward appearances, everything was great. I was making money. I had, I had prestige. I had a family that seemed happy, I a wife that loved me, and I was faithful to her and Paid my taxes and was honest and, you know, did, you know, I thought I was a good person. But I had no idea what God required. I had no idea what God's standards were. I was measuring myself by the world standard and considering that I was a lawyer that... You're not laughing. <laughs> I was supposed to laugh at that point. And, 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 and so I thought, I was, I, thought I, was, I was a pretty good person. I really did. So I, don't know, I didn't know why I needed Jesus I thought Jesus was for women and weak-minded men. That was just where I was. It wasn't, But that's where I was. I didn't think He was for people that really had a lot of education. I just thought, you know, He was kind of what people needed to depend upon. But I had my life together until God, by His precious Spirit and His grace, began to open my eyes up to see how much I had it together on the inside. And that was His grace that did that. But as I came to Him... And as we all have come to Him, we come to Him for different reasons, just as we all come to church for different reasons. You chose to come today. There were people that chose not to come today, whether it was the weather or yesterday was Christmas, whatever it was, but you chose to come today. But many of us come to church for different reasons, and many of them are good reasons. Sometimes the reason we come to church, sometimes the reason we come to God is because we want to feel better about ourselves. We want to fulfill a duty that we think we have. So, you know, this is what... I I was raised in church, but my whole motive in going to church was to fulfill the obligation you have of going to church. So when I left after the hour, because that's how long church was. Remember those days? We left after an hour. I felt good about myself because I'd spent... I'd given an hour to God. And all the rest of the week I gave to myself. But I'd given an hour to God, so I felt good about myself. So that was my motive for going to church, and that's still why some people go to church today. Sometimes we come to church and we come to God because, because God will do things for us. And it's interesting because our motives can kind of change. Well, maybe they really don't. You know, it's interesting because after 9-11, every church was filled. And people were making all kinds of commitments again. Why? Why did they come to church? Because they were scared. Why did they come to church? Because they discovered that things were not necessarily under everybody's control, that the government did not necessarily have everything under control, that the government was trying to protect us, was not able to protect us from everything. And they suddenly discovered that the world that they knew could change. And it caused them to go back and realize, I've got to get a hold of someone who I can have confidence won't change, and that's God. There's an old expression that in an earthquake, even an atheist looks up. It's easy to be an atheist when everything's going well. But when everything you built your life on around you starts crumbling, we've got to have something we know we're standing on that is more solid and more secure than ourselves. And so many of us have come to God and serve God for that reason. And that's a, that's a fine reason. Some, some of us serve God because of what we're going to get back. And, and my big concern is for the church, in, especially in the United States today, is that's become the mentality in many churches. And, 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 uh, because the Bible does teach that God will bless us and bless It talks about the blessing of Abraham. But if that's all we ever hear, then it develops a mentality that, you know, there are fringe benefits to being in Christ, and I want them. And so we get our focus on what am I getting out of this deal. You know, I've come to Christ and I know He's going to heal me, He's going to take care of me, He's going to provide my needs. But the problem is if it's not happening, or it's not happening as fast as I think it ought to happen, I get upset because I'm not getting what I think I'm entitled to. And that's sadly where much of the church in the United States is today. And it's a setup because if things ever change, and they may well, and all the things we built our confidence and security in begin to crumble, we're going to, what are we going to turn to? We're going to turn to whatever we've, is our motive for coming to God. And if that's no longer being fulfilled, then we'll look elsewhere to have it fulfilled. And that's exactly what Satan's design is. The Bible does say... Oh, this is an exciting Christmas message. The Bible does say that in the last days, many will fall away. It says they'll be carried away because they'll have itching ears and they'll follow after teaching that will satisfy what they want and not tell them the truth. People come to God for many different reasons. And God will do these things for us. God will take care of you. God will provide for you. God will bless you. He will prosper you. We've got to do things His way, but He'll do those things. He'll heal you. He'll do all those things. But God's given us something far greater than healing, far greater than financial blessing or prosperity, far better than wisdom and counsel and guidance and all those things that are priceless. God's given us something far better. And very few of us really avail ourselves of the true gift that he's given. And that gift that he's given to us is himself. And the reason we miss that so often is because our focus is so much on our needs Our focus is so much on our our natural material needs and 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 they have a way of being real to us. I mean if the lights are turned off because I can't pay the bill, that's real to me. If if you know there's no food on the table, that's real. And so we can turn to him to meet those needs. But when we do that, and that's all we do, we've missed the greatest gift that God has literally given Himself and all that He is to us. Not just that He's made Himself and His power and His blessings available to us, but He's given Himself to us. Jesus was trying to get that across to His disciples in what we call the Sermon on the Mount because he talks in there about about, um, uh, where your treasure is, is where your heart will be. That's in Matthew chapter 6. Where your treasure is, is where your heart will be. That whole passage is talking about your heart and, and seeking Him with your heart. And he gives that strange discussion. None of this is in my notes. This is just coming out of here. That strange discussion where he says, you know, He says, you know, if if your eye is evil, then the light that's in it is darkness. That doesn't make sense. Because how can the light that's getting in my eyes be darkness? If there's darkness, there's no light getting in, right? So that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about your natural eyes. What he's talking about is your heart. And what he's saying here is an analogy that we can understand. He's saying the same way that light determines, your eyes determine what gets into your mind. Your heart determines what gets into your spirit. And when he says, if your eye is evil, that word is panera in Greek, which means, one of the meanings of it is, is diseased. So what he's saying there is, if your eye is diseased... See, light's like a cataract. If you've ever had a cataract or know people have a cataract, light's getting in, but it's not clear. It's being distorted because there's, there's a film in, within the, in the front of that eye that's this, 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 this causing the light to be refracted, and so the light that gets into the retina in the back of your eye is not focused the way it's supposed to be. Instead, it's distorted. But light's getting in there, but it's not accurate. And that's what Jesus is teaching there. He said, in the same way, if your eye is diseased, the light that's getting in is unreliable. You're seeing things, but you're not seeing them clearly. In the same way, because he goes on to talk about what your heart's seeking after. That's why he starts it by saying, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Whatever you value, whatever you're looking out for life... That's where your heart is going to be connected to. And then he goes down in verse, in verse 19, he says, uh, he says, talks about, you know, you cannot serve God and mammon, or that's just things. You can't do both. And then he goes in verse 20 to the strange discussion where he talks about, about, you know, about, about how they don't live the way the Gentiles live because they're worried about what they're going to eat, they're worried about what they're going to wear, they're worried about you know, where they're going to live, they're worried about all those natural things. Now, he's not saying we shouldn't care about them, he's not saying we shouldn't be irresponsible about them, but he's saying we should not have, they should not be such a care to us that our hearts become connected with them. We've just come through Christmas and we're now in the kind of the aftermath of Christmas, which is cleaning up, returning things, and all that stuff. And so much of Christmas has been about stuff, things. Did we get the right present? Did I give the right present? Did this fit? Does that not do? And you know, we get so uptight over things. And what happens is, the more we think about those things, the more we focus on those things, the more our heart begins to be given to those things. And Jesus goes on to say, He's not saying we shouldn't have those things. What He says is, here is the lesson, and of course it's the verse we know so well, Matthew 6, 33. Therefore seek you first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all the things you need will be added unto you. So Jesus is talking about the priorities of our heart where our motive is seeking Him. He says, if you seek Him, then all the things you need will be added unto you. I get this image sometimes that God has His hands full of things. And it's kind of like the children around the Christmas tree, you know, taking the presents. And God, I need this, and God, I need this, and Aunt Susie needs this, and da-da-da-da-da. And God's blessing and handing things out And at some point he's saying, "What? how about me? I've given me. In our our natural, unrenewed mind, we'd almost, and we wouldn't dare say this in church, but I'll say it for us. Well, yeah, but, but what can you do for me? I mean, I need the things that, you. you know, what do I get from you, from having a relationship with you? But if we really knew what comes from having him, all the rest of these things would just kind of pale away in insignificance. Now let's go over to, Matt, to John 15, because this really does fit within our study. John 15, Jesus is continuing to talk to them about preparing them to, for Him to go. And He says in the beginning, verse 1, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. We talked about that last time. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away That word also means lift up every branch that bears fruit. He prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. And here, look at this. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without, without me or apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone abides in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it will be done unto you. This fits in with this astonishing promise he made over in verse 13 of chapter 14. We said, if you keep my commandments, my Father and I will come and we will abide in you. The writer John is really the only one that in this sense uses this word abide. It's the Greek word meno, M-E-N-O, which literally means to reside in, to, to, to remain in. And I was meditating on that. What does that word mean? Because he's telling us to abide in him. And then I realized I have a place of abode. It's my house. What do I do when I abide in my house? I live there. It's where my things are. Whatever is of value, I keep there because I know it's safe there. I may go out and run errands and I may go to work, but I always come back to my home. It's where I'm safe, it's where I'm comfortable, and it's my house we travel on trips we've been on mission trips we've been in other parts of the world and come back but it's always good when you come home cuz it's my home there's nothing like my bed All right i've slept in more comfortable beds but this is my bed It's got the little you know it's got it's me it's my bed it's my house it's my chair it's just it's 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 where i belong and what jesus is saying is Because you have come to me, there's a new place of abode for you. And there's a new place where I'm going to abide. My place where I'm now comfortable and at home is in you. Now, we hear this, we've heard this to some degree before, but you've got to understand what this must have sounded like to a Jew in that day and age. Because the God they knew of was a God of judgment. Judgment. The God they knew of was a God of the law. The God they knew of was a God who dwelt in heaven. Of course, that's where most people think God dwells today anyway. That's where many Christians think He dwells. If you look back in the Old Testament, you'll see in Genesis, and we've looked back in our study and seen some of it there, but if you really step back as you read that story, you'll see a picture of God creating this man in order to be with Him. In chapter 3, after Adam and Eve have broken God's commandment, God comes down to walk with him in the cool of the evening, of the garden in the evening, and you almost sense that this was a regular practice, that God walked with him and spent time with him and enjoyed being with him, and they enjoyed being with him. And now because of the sin, that fellowship has been separated. There's a breach there that they can't, they, they, can't, they can't cover over, and that breach is sin because God is a righteous Holy being, and everything else in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, is God laying out His design to restore that relationship, that place of relationship with man again. God form calls a man named Abram, living in a very pagan society, which is where Iraq is located now. God calls this man and reveals himself to him. Up until this point, this man's just worshipped the moon. And the moon never talked to him, at least I assume it didn't. (laughs) And now there's a God that's speaking to him and calling him and giving him a purpose and telling him to leave his family, to leave his home and to go and he will tell him where that place is when they get there. And God's plan is to take a man, Abram, and out of this man to form a people with whom God would have a very special relationship, unlike His relationship with every other nation on the earth up until that time or after that time. That God would enter into a covenant, a blood covenant, with this nation through this man. And that's exactly what God did. And the purpose of that covenant was it was a legal way that God could give Himself to that people. And God did that. He gave Himself to them. Even the story of how they ended up in Egypt is a living out of that covenant relationship because there was a famine coming in the land where God's people dwelt. And God, to prepare them for the famine, sent Joseph ahead. Joseph didn't understand why he went up until that point, not until later on. But Joseph, through a whole series of events which really was using his brother's sin, positioned Joseph so that at the time the famine hit, their own brother would be handling the famine relief program in Egypt so that when it was time, God could bring His covenant people under the umbrella and protection of this biggest nation of the world and that nation would feed them. And that's exactly what happened. God was providing for them. What happened is they overstayed their need to be there. And when they finally get desperate in, in, in living under this tremendous, this tremendous oppression that they're under, they cry out to God, their God whom they had this covenant with, whom they'd forgotten. He never forgot the covenant, but they cried out to this God for, for their deliverance, and He heard their cry. But because He had a covenant with them, and they be- He belonged to them, and they belonged to Him, He already had the Deliverer prepared 80 years into His preparation, Moses. So when they cried out for their deliverer, their deliverer was prepared. And God sent Moses to them and through the supernatural display of power, God delivers His people. And even the instructions that He gave to Moses to tell Pharaoh why God was delivering them. He said, Jehovah has said to tell you to let my people go. And this is the key most people forget that they may go out into the wilderness and worship him. And then when they got out, they got out about three months, and God had them come down by a mountain. And as they get now, there's Mount, Mount Horeb. God calls Moses up onto the mountain. And this is so poignant. It's in Genesis 19. God says, I want you to prepare the people. And in three days, I want you to gather them around the mountain because I'm going to come down on the mountain and I'm going to reveal myself to them in a measure, not the fullness of it, because they couldn't live if He revealed the fullness of it. In fact, it tells you later on in Deuteronomy, tells you why God did not appear in a form, because it says if He had appeared in the form He knew His people, they would have made some image of that form. And so He came down instead in fire and in lightning and in smoke, and the people gathered around the mountain. And there's one verse in there, because we read these as events. We need to read it as a relationship, as the heart of a father and a creator who longs to be among his people and to know them and for them to know him. And the problem is there's this gap of sin And if He reaches out and to embrace them, He would destroy them because His righteousness and His holiness is pure and absolute and their sin, as good as some of them were, their sin would have had to be judged in His presence. We don't see a God sitting back there saying, well, you created this sin. You figure out how you're going to get out of it. And if, by the way, you find some way to get out of the sin, here I am. You can come see me. No, you see the heart of a creator, the heart of a God, the heart of a father who longs for to be among his people. And so that one verse in there says that on that third day, oh, I love this, Moses brought the people out to meet their God. Last August, we had the privilege of going down to be with our daughter when she had her second child. And I'm just thinking of the time when, you know, they go through all the stuff after the delivery and clean them up and test the test and everything out. And then there's that moment when they bring the baby into the mother's room and says, here's your daughter. Here's your daughter. You've been carrying her for nine months in your womb. Imagining what she looks like, and nowadays, of course, with the ultrasound, you can see some pictures. But you know, you don't know—you don't know hair color, you don't know all that. You know, you've been carrying them around inside of you, and now you've given birth, and here's your daughter. That's kind of what I sense. It's like God's going through all of this, and He's come down on this mountain. And Moses says, "I'm going to bring you out to meet your God, who delivered you, who loves you." And they came out around the foot base of the mountain. And they couldn't handle God and His power. And so they pulled away and they said to Moses, no, this is, we can't handle this. You go talk to him and tell, him what, tell us what he said. And they pulled away. And God pulled Moses up on the mountain again and God said, I'm giving you supernatural drawing plans because I want you to construct something for me. I want you to construct a tent. And I want you to construct, and you're going to call it a tabernacle. Tabernacle just means a dwelling place. You're going to construct this. And I want you to design it with exactly all these specifications. There's a book in the, in the books where I wrote on, called the, the Tabernacle of Moses in the Wilderness or Why Study an Old Tent. And it, it goes through this and why God did this and, and what these different parts were. And, 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 but he gave Moses very detailed instructions. And then when they'd finished constructing this beautiful tent and the courtyard around it, and everything in there has a significance legally so that God could do what He wanted to do. And at the moment that this tent was dedicated, it says God came down to reside in the innermost tent called the Holy of Holies, to reside above the gold cherubim sitting on the mercy seat and all of that has significance of why God could now come in his presence and be there among them. And what it is is the heart of a creator who said, I'm not satisfied living in heaven, watching you come and go. And do, I want to be among you. I want to be with you. I don't want to be a distant God and creator. I want to I be with you. And this is, I, this is the closest I can get because of where you are right now. But I'm training you and preparing you for something. And then of course generations come and go. They didn't understand all that. They didn't understand what they had. All they knew is this God led them through the wilderness. And this God defeated their enemies. That's really all they knew. He was among them, but they didn't know what he was like. They couldn't have him and he couldn't have them. And then the Bible tells us there's this period of about four hundred years where of silence. And then the silence is broken with angelic beings. And we see this in Matthew's account of the, of the birth of Christ. And we see this in what I talked about on Christmas Eve in John's account. And one of the most powerful verses in the Bible, to me, is John 1:14. And the word became flesh. And the Greek word says, and tabernacled among us. Now we have God not able, not restricted to living in a tent made with materials that man had put together. He had to do that because the tent had to represent holiness. But now God had sent His own Son to dwell in flesh, and He had to be holy. But now you've got God dwelling among His people, not in a gold tent but in human flesh. And now God could reach out and touch us. Now God could look in our eyes. Now God could hear our voice and we could hear His voice. Now God could understand what it's like to deal with flesh the way we do because he had to deal with his flesh. That's why I believe the first thing the Holy Spirit did when he was filled with the Spirit was lead him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Part of his training and preparation was how to learn how to handle this flesh and to deal with the pressures that come against this flesh so that he could maintain dominion over it. Hebrews chapter chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, tell us that Jesus is a high priest for us. And one of the reasons is he has been tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, so that we can come boldly to a throne of grace to receive help in time of need. It's verse 16. He knows what your struggles are like because he came to walk among us so that he might know and identify with us. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that he had to take on flesh and be like his brethren so that he might be that propitiation for our sins. But God was not satisfied to live among us in a tent. God was not satisfied to live among us as a human being that we could see and He could see us. He wasn't satisfied with that. We're satisfied with that all too often. We're satisfied with the presence of God in church. We're satisfied with our Bible. We're satisfied with those things. But God's not satisfied with that. Because if we're satisfied with that, then Jesus could have lived His life out. But Jesus came to die. And this is what the disciples didn't understand. Because now that they height, at the height of his ministry, the height of his effectiveness, at the height of his popularity, at the height of his power, and Jesus is announcing to him, I must leave you. And he says these strange words, it's to your advantage that I go. I'm sure they couldn't understand that. How could it be better for them that he's not here than that he's here among us? And Jesus gave them the answer. He says, because I'm going, I'm going to ask the Father and He's going to send to you the Holy Spirit who has been with you in me and now He's going to be in you. God was not satisfied until He could literally give Himself to you, to live inside of you, to dwell inside of you. And most of us are still not really conscious of His presence in us. Oh, we'll say, oh, I felt the Holy Ghost and all that. But when you pray, where do you think God is? Well, He's seated on the throne in heaven, but He's also in you. And the proof that we've not really received this gift and all that he means as having given himself to us is we're not satisfied. We look at other things to satisfy longings inside of us. So we've just come through Christmas and we've given all kinds of things and received all kinds of things and all this stuff and we're lo- people are looking for something to fulfill that satisfaction, that need inside, that need to be accepted, that need to be have, for our life to have meaning, that need, there's a need built in. See, it's built inside of us. It's built inside of us. It's, it's like when General Motors or Ford Motor Company or Chrysler or whatever they are nowadays, when they've designed an automobile and it comes off that assembly line it comes off that assembly line with a built-in need. You understand that. It comes off the assembly line perfect in every way according to design, or at least supposed to be. But it's got a designed intended need and that design intended need is gasoline. It's made to run on a particular fuel Called gasoline, which is why we'll pay three twenty a gallon for some fluid that stinks. Excuse me, smells. That's dangerous. That's volatile. That they've got to give you all kinds of warning. I was filling my car up the other day. And I was. I got to turn my cell phone off now. Why would I pay three dollars and thirty cents per gallon to put in this machine? For something that has no value to me. Because what does have value to me is the transportation that car provides, and it will only get me somewhere if I pay $330 to put the gasoline in. And the car was designed that way. Now, if you study it out, and I'm not a scientist, but I've just read this. Its it's engine runs, it's an internal combustion engine. Which means there's an explosion that takes place inside, which means there's a little fire, a brief fire. So theoretically, anything that'll burn will move that engine. Anything that's made of carbon. Well, peanut butter has carbon in it. <laughs> Try running your engine on peanut butter. Friend of mine has a boat, and in, you know you got to be careful when you pull up to a dock, because there's two types of nozzles. There's gas and there's diesel. If you put diesel in a gasoline engine, it ain't going to run right. You were made by the manufacturer to run on a fuel you were designed with a need. And that need is only truly satisfied when what you're relying on inside is what you were designed to need. Oh, so good. Thank you, Jesus. What you were designed to need wasn't cars, it wasn't clothing, although we do need those. It wasn't houses, It wasn't position. It wasn't prestige. It wasn't even the love of other people. You and I were designed by our manufacturer to run on Him. That's why only He can satisfy eternally. This is what Jesus was talking about at the woman at the well when He said, If you knew who was asked you for water, you would come and ask of Me and I would give you water from which you'd never thirst again because I would give you the well, the source of that water, dwelling in you. God has given Himself to you. There's a story in I guess Luke's account after Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's walking along these these two disciples are walking along and there's a third man comes and joins their group as they're walking along and asks them where they're going and they talk about the events that have just taken place in Jerusalem which is the crucifixion and then the story that he's been raised from the dead and they, and they talk with him about this and he asks them about this and they say, don't you know? Haven't you been around? Haven't you heard what's going on? And so they stop at an inn to get something to eat and they ask him to join him. He sits down and he eats with them and then suddenly their eyes are opened and they realize they've been walking along with the master all along and when they recognize who he is he disappears and I love this line, this verse one turns to the other and says oh how our hearts burn within us when he spoke what's that burning within it's that longing that only he can meet it's that yearning that only He can fill and satisfy. It's that thirst that only He can meet. God's given us blessings and provision and protection and promises and all kinds of things. But the greatest thing He's given is Himself. Years ago I was meditating on this. I still remember where I was. I was working out in Oklahoma, and I was working in a law office, and I was on the bus getting in, and I just, like I had this vision. Not a real vision, it's just a picture in my mind. It's like when I got saved, I, you know, it's like I walked in a door that I didn't even know was there. And this door opens, and I'm led into, I'm led into salvation, and all, all I know is, I don't even know what, what it is. I begin to find out that means I don't have to go to hell. Well, that's pretty good. Whew. I don't have to go I don't have to go to hell. And what it's like there's rooms there. So you go in this first room and you find out, well, these are things God will do for you. You know. God will take care of you. He'll provide your needs. Wow, that's nice. Then you go over here and you find there's another room over here and find He'll 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 heal you. Wow. That's great you go over here and find out God will give you wisdom and over here God will solve problems in your life and God will do this and each one of these is taking you down a corridor and as you go down, I go down the corridor I begin to re- I get curious well where does this corridor lead cuz I'm being led down a corridor by these blessings and these things and but where do they lead and I look up and it's like there's a door at the end As you look at the door, the door opens, and there He is. And somehow, as you see Him, all the rest of the things just kind of fade away. But the tragedy is, as you see Him, there's still people back in the first room. They're back in this room with, Oh, my God will supply all my needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus How isn't that wonderful? You'll see people over here. Wrong room. That one's over here. They're in this room. Well, God will heal me and take care of me. And and they're still in this room of what God's going to do for me. And God's going to do this over here. But it's all designed to draw you to the end of the corridor, which is Him. A living relationship with Him. And that's what Jesus means by abide. To abide is to live in this relationship, is to draw from it every day. That doesn't mean you be conscious of Him 24 hours a day, but you're in Him. Your heart is in Him. He has your heart, but you've spent time with Him. So you can't do this unless you spend time with Him. When uh, I met my wife, who be here second service with the boys, her boys are home, so she spends her time morning with them, she'll be with them. When I met her, and as many of you heard this story, she was in school 800 miles from where I was in school, and she was a blind date. I don't mean she couldn't see, I mean I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know her. Her roommate was engaged to my fraternity brother, and I had a car, and he didn't. It's that simple. And after I met her and fell in love with her, it was amazing what I would do. I never wrote letters in my life before. Now, this was before texting and video and all that stuff. We actually had to take a pen and a piece of paper. Some of you may not remember what that stuff is, and write a letter. Dear Anita or my dearest, you know, and then you had to do this and you fold it up and put it in something called an envelope, and you put a stamp on it. And you put it in a mailbox. And eventually, would make it there. Well, we had telephones. We didn't have cell phones. But we'd call each other, but they were expensive. But every other weekend, in my last year of college, I arranged my schedule so that I had no classes on Friday. And 5 o'clock in the morning, I'd get in that car, and I would drive in the wintertime through upstate New York, through three major snow belts, to pick her up when she got out of school and take her up to her family, and then when she had a midnight curfew, I take her back at midnight and I get back in my car, drive back through three snow belts to my eight o'clock philosophy class on Monday morning. You can tell how much I got out of that. <laughs> I remember one year, one trip driving home. The snow was so bad I got behind a tractor trailer, and I just hoped he was going where I was going because that's all I could see. Why would I do something like that? Why would I do something like that? Because all I wanted to do was be with her. All I wanted to do was be with her. Nobody had to tell me, "Look, if you're in love with somebody, this is the things you do." In fact, her father had to try to slow me down and said, "Look, you're dry, you know I'm worried about you." So that when I was graduated from college, about to go to law school, which was eight hours further, he gave me an ultimatum. He said, either you marry her and take her with you or you break this off because I can't handle this anymore. (laughs) But I didn't hear reason. I wasn't, well, what am I supposed to do? What am I getting out of this? It was costing me. It wasn't, the price of gas wasn't what it is today. It was costing me time. It was costing me my car. It was costing me gas. It was, I didn't think of those things. I only thought of one thing. She's there, and I'm here, and I can't wait to be with her again. I remember the f- really the first thought I had after our wedding was, I don't ever have to say goodbye to you again and get in a car and drive eight hours away. Nobody had to tell me that. Because I'd given my heart to her and I was in love with her. If we can do that for another human being who's not perfect, who loves us as best they can, how much more can we do this for a God who didn't drive 800 miles through three snowstorms but left the glory of heaven to dwell inside of you and me. With all my weaknesses and all my failures and all my frustrations, which I imagine would frustrate Him, He still lives in me. Because the reason He came to live in me is He loves me. And because He loves me, He wanted to give Himself to me and to you. There's no gift that God has or anybody else has that can begin to compare with the gift of a creator God, the King of all creation, who can create anything, can do anything, chose to give it up and live in you because He loves you. He gave Himself to you. All the other things are there, but without Him, all those other things become our God. It's when He has that place in our heart that everything else begins to get in its right perspective and things begin to work right. When I get the peanut butter out of the engine and I begin to put the gasoline in, the engine begins to run right when I live my life based on my relationship with Him, my love for Him and His love for me, things just get in their right perspective. So receive the gift. As you begin 2010, enjoy this gift. Unwrap this gift. Use this gift. Spend time with this gift. Because this gift will never wear out. You'll never break. It has an eternal warranty. You'll never run. The batteries will never run down. His love for you, His desire for you, to give Himself to you, He's just waiting for you to unwrap Him. He's just waiting. And the more you unwrap of Him, the more there is to unwrap. He truly is the gift that keeps on giving. He truly is the gift that keeps on giving.